We're going to be in Jonah 2. We're going to be in Jonah this whole month, okay? Jonah 2, Jonah 3 next week. Kind of systematic, isn't it? Uh, Isn't it hard in the world in which we live to find a quiet place? I've got to be really intentional about finding a quiet place if I want to think and certainly if I want to pray. So where is your quiet place? Um, uh, uh, Where do you find is your best place to pray? Now, with me, often it's in in the car. I have a bit of a commute every day, so it's a good way for me to redeem that time. I also have a study at home that is a good, quiet place. Uh, This morning, I was working on this stuff on the patio for a while, and, and that's a good place sometimes. What is your quiet place? What's your best place to go and pray? Now, the truth is, okay, in the context of our story, Our hero, Jonah, prays in a place described in the Bible as, quote, from inside the fish. Now, we'll talk a little bit about being inside the fish. But the key that we want to kind of deal with here is I don't want to wait till I'm inside the fish to decide it's time to pray. Okay? That's, that's the beginning of our, of our time together today. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background. I began to think to this week, why was it that Jonah was so dead set against going to Nineveh? All right, that's where this thing all started. Uh, Jonah just didn't want to go to Nineveh, so he goes to Tarshish instead via a, a boat in Joppa. And by the way, never got to Tarshish, did he? But why was that such a big deal? Now, It could be that Jonah, as a prophet, prophet of God, just didn't want to hang out with pagan people. And there is a degree of truth to that thought. He just didn't want to hang out with uh, idol worshipers. Um, But there'd been a lot of military conflicts between uh, Israel and Assyria, of which Nineveh was kind of the capital. Um, And um, that had something to do with it, too. Jonah, we said last week, was from the north part of Israel, from a place called Gath-Hefer. Um, and it was more likely that um, his area or his region had already experienced conflict, may o- maybe over hundreds of years, with the Assyrians. And, and Jonah could have had relatives that actually had been, gone to war with the Assyrians. Give a little background on that. About 853 BC, or 75 years or so before Jonah began to speak, King Shalmaneser III, now he's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but this Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, had attacked a coalition of 11 or 12 kings that included King Ahab of Israel. Now, what do you remember about Ahab? What? <laughs> Ahab the Arab, Sultan of the Burning Sand. Not the, not the guy. Not the guy, Sorry. But that's a great song, and you could, I listened to it on YouTube actually about a month ago. You can find it. What do you know about Ahab? Not a good guy. One of the northern kings of Israel, and they all were skunks. And he was the skunkiest of them all, mainly because of who he was married to. Do you remember who he was married to? 
Jezebel. Yeah, that's Ahab. Well, uh, uh, Shalmaneser II comes against uh, a, a coalition of kings, uh, including King Ahab of Israel. And the resulting battle of Karkar um, uh, includes the loss on the, pack, on the part of the coalition of 2,000 chariots and about 10,000 men of, men of Israel, just, just from Israel. It's very possible that some of Jonah's relatives of a previous, previous generation fought the Assyrians in that battle. So it's kind of, if you're thinking about uh, this in context, you're thinking about somebody that you personally lost in a war. Who were they fighting against? Well, it could be that, that it, part of Jonah's deal was these were, these were enemies. Uh, in 841, uh, Shalmaneser III, so that would be Shalmaneser the second son, again, flexed the muscle of Assyria against Israel. And so there was this recurrent war. Jonah and his fellow Israelites had a great disdain, even a hatred for Assyria. He'd rather go anywhere, could it be, that he'd rather go anywhere than to those despised people, especially to preach the mercy of God to them. Now, who would that be in our day? I think that's kind of an important question. Who would that be in our day? Would it be uh, for the, us in the U.S.? Would it be, boy, if the Lord told me to go speak to the Russians right now, I don't know if I'd want to go. You know, maybe in the 80s that was the case. Although the Rus Russia's back in the news now, right? Is it the Russians? Uh, would it be uh, Iran? Would it be Iraq? Would it be um, uh, Texas? Uh, Is John here? John just cutting me with his eyes big time. Well, you get the idea. What if God said to you, you've got a really good testimony. I want you to go give it to them. Whoever they are. Well, that's what our friend Jonah was rebelling against. Now, we're going to get into it a little bit here. And uh, Steve, if you've got the mic over there, would you read from chapter 2, read the first three verses. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Can I get someone to find 2 Chronicles 14, 11? I want us to read that in just a minute because there's a word there. We've got to, so Cindy, can I get you or Steve or somebody to go there or, or hand it to Obert? He can read it. <laughs> your daughter graduated yesterday. Congratulations. That's I saw her coming through the, I actually read her name yesterday. That's one. We had uh, Mackey graduation here in this building yesterday. 600-some graduates, quite a day. Um, okay, now, if you remember our study last week, and if you're not here, I'll catch you up a little bit, but if you remember, Jonah has attended, in chapter one, he attended a prayer meeting. Who called it? The sailors, the ship's crew. Uh, the wind was high, the waves were higher, uh, they feared death. And so they're, they're calling out to any God they can call out to. And Jonah's asleep in the, in the, uh, um, uh, the, 
the uh, underdecks of, of this ship, and they wake him up and say, hey, pal, uh, join us here in calling out to your God. So it's interesting here that Jonah was called, he was invited to the sailors' prayer meeting in chapter 1, but I don't see any notice here that he prayed with them. He testified to them a little but I don't see any, any, I think there was, would be a recognition of it if he had prayed with them, he joined them in their prayer, prayer line, uh, the, kind of their prayer meeting. So, so this is Jonah's first recorded prayer that begins in chapter two. And, um, and I've, I've got to ask the question, what did it take for Jonah to finally pray? <laughs> It took a storm, and it took a fish for Jonah to pray. Now, there's a word here, if you look at verse 1, there, there are a couple of words here that are kind of interesting to me, but there's a word here, um, um, to the Lord his God. See that phrase? To the Lord his God. That's one expression in the Old Testament Hebrew, um, and it's only in two places in the Bible. Here... And in 2 Chronicles, uh, what did I say, 14.11. Steve, would you read that one? Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Now this is in the context of another good prayer Played, prayed later on, but it, it's the idea here. In both cases, in Jonah's case and in the case over in Second Chronicles, this this phrase "to the Lord," I prayed to the Lord my God, is used only when somebody's back is up against the wall, or in Jonah's case, your back is up against a fish. Isn't it interesting here that they're waiting until a day of desperation? to use a key phrase and to call out to the Lord. I just don't want to wait till that. So, only here's what goes in your blank. Only after a life and death situation do we find Jonah praying. That seems a little late to me. Quite late, actually. Now, look at verse 2. Um, let, let me read it to you again. Uh, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I called for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. So you kind of hear this, I called and I called. If you're reading the New American Standard, uh, that second uh, phrase, um, Jeff, read, read verse 2 from yours, would you? Yep. Okay. 2-2. Two, two. Okay, now, I called to him, and I called to him. Those are two different words. The first part of verse 2, I called to him. The second one uh, is a different word in the Hebrew. It's interesting to me, at least, uh, that uh, the idea here is, is better conveyed in, um, in the New American Standard. I called to you, and then he says, I cried out to you. Um, his prayer is intensifying here. Now, Cindy, I think I've asked you if you would please to read Psalm 18, 6, 
and then Psalm 28, verse 1 and 2. A similar expressions or a similar kind of a, a pattern that's going to be used here. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And now to 28. Number one, one and two. Uh, to you, O Lord, O Lord, my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call out to you for help, as I lift my hands towards your most holy place. Okay, so in both of these, in the Psalms, and there's another one in Psalm 119 that I left your reference to, it's like what Jonah has done. He, he says, I called to you, and then he says, I cried out to you. It gets serious. The same expressions are used, the same kind of progression of intensity of prayer is, is uh, used here. So it kind of leaves me with the thought, at least, is the fervency of my prayer the issue? Well, are you praying about this? Yeah, I called out to God. Are you praying about this? You know what? I've been on my knees night and day crying out to God. There's a difference in that emotion, isn't there? I, have you ever had uh, somebody, and, and, and by the way, not thinking about anybody in this room, but have you ever heard somebody, you, you've got a really serious issue going on, and somebody just kind of flippantly says, you know, I've prayed for you. And you wonder if they really have. And then com contrast that with a really good friend who comes to you and says, how's it going in that issue? And they say to you, you know, I've prayed for you every day for the last, ever since you told me about this. And you know they're telling the truth. And you know they have cried out to God. Is fervency the issue? Now that's an old word. Is intensity the issue? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to you. That's a good thing, but it's not really the issue. I mean, how hard I pray. You know. <laughs> Did you try harder? You know, I bared down. But that's not the issue, Larry. We just ceased to become friends, didn't we? I'm sorry. He just, he just said, I'm not coming back ever again. <laughs> What's the issue? The issue in verse 2 is I called out to him and he heard me. And he answered me. Now, I'm not, please hear me here. I'm not, not advocating for fervency in prayer, for bearing down in prayer to God. But what I'm going to tell you is, it's not how hard you pray that matters. It's who you pray to that matters. You hear me? Jonah could have prayed Till the cows came home. Now, he couldn't have seen the cows because he's in a fish. But, okay. He could have prayed till the cows came home. But unless he prayed to God, who heard him and answered, you know what? You need to be encouraged and maybe admonished occasionally in your prayer life to know the truth that God hears you every time. As his child, I can promise you that. He hears you. And a second promise, he answers. May not be the answer I want. May not be in the timing I want. 
But God hears you and he answers you when you pray. You can take that to Jeff's bank or any other bank, but, you know, preferably. Okay? You can take it to the bank. He hears you and he answers. It's not the fact that Jonah called out to God and then he cried out to God. It's who he called out to and to whom he cried out that makes all the difference in the world. Now, so in verse 3, Jonah is going to finally admit, kind of between the lines here, the ultimate power behind his situation. Look at verse 3 again. You cast me into the deep. Your breakers, your billows passed over me. See that? Uh, if, if you're reading, um, you might want to say, well, wait a minute. Who hurled Jonah over the edge of the boat? It was sailors. It was men. Remember, they were a little reluctant to do that. And, they, and he, he talked to me and said, do that in the, in the storm will come. And it did. Who owns the waves and the breakers here? Who owns the deep? The first step often in, in recognizing, the, the first step in getting help is recognizing I need help and who it needs to come from. If you're a 12 stepper in this room, you recognize the first and second steps are surrounded by the idea that, that I got to recognize that I'm powerless and I got to recognize that he is powerful. <clears throat> the poet Sam Walter Foss, who died about 1911, so he was... He was late in 19th century. Is best known for works like Becoming American and The House by the Side of the Road. But a lesser known poem that he wrote is a poem called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. You may want to look it up. It's just 24 lines long. Uh, in those 24 lines, a deacon and an elder and two ministers give their opinions in exalted language regarding the best posture for prayer. Okay? It, it's kind of funny. <clears throat> The deacon advocates that you always got to pray where you're kneeling. A minister disagrees, contending that prayer should be offered while standing with your arms outstretched and eyes lifted toward heaven. The elder is adamant that praying with your eyes closed and head bowed is the proper way. The second minister opines that prayer has to be offered with hands clasped in front, thumbs pointing downward. I don't even know how to do that. Having heard all this, Plain-spoken Cyrus Brown offers an entirely different perspective. His own, what he calls prayingist prayer, occurred when he fell headfirst down a well and became stuck in that position. So evidently he thinks the best prayingist prayer is with your head down stuck in a well. I want to say it again. If times of desperation, situations of absolute desperation are the only times you pray, what do you think about how healthy your prayer life is? Could be what we're dealing with here. Now, let's go to verse 4. Steve, you're still over there. You read 4, 5, and 6. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. 
barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. It's interesting here, if you, if you read the verse that he began, I've been expelled from your sight. In the NIV, it says it a little differently. It says, I've been banished from your sight. There is a hopeless desperation in that. And then there's a word. In the NIV, it's a three-letter word. In the, in the one that I'm working from, it's a little longer word. But in the NIV, just let's think about that for a minute. It, by the way, some, uh, someday, this will be a great study. When I retire someday, maybe I'll take time to just do this. To study the yets in the Bible. The yets. My situation is hopeless. Yet. In the, in the New American Standard, it says, Jonah says, I've been banished from your sight. Nonetheless, there's a little bit of veiled hope there. Do you see it? A faint hope in this despair. And, and so he describes his situation in verse 5 in pretty vivid um, details. Uh, the words indicate um, kind of how bad things are where he is. Uh, he's going to describe kind of the utter despair and hopelessness of his situation by talking about being engulfed by water. He's going to talk about deep water. He's even going to go so far. I like this. If you don't think he's in a fish, look at the third vivid explanation. There is seaweed wrapped around my head. Pretty vivid, you know. It paints a word picture, doesn't it? Can you imagine, we were talking about this uh, at the dinner table last night. Can you imagine the stench where this guy was, wherever he was? Can you imagine? Seaweed wrapped around his head. So there's kind of a, he, 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 the despair is coming out here in this kind of vivid explanation and the hopelessness of it. And he fears, in verse 6, he fears, and by the way, when he uses this imagery that he uses, indicate depth when he says, um, I descended to the roots of the mountains. They, you know, they thought the mountains went under the sea, and so he's, he's kind of got that figured out. That I'm all the way down here. Then he says, the, the earth with its bars was around me. There's the word, forever. What's he thinking? He thinks his plight is eternal, forever. You can put the word forever in there. He figures it's over. It's over. In 6a. Okay? But in 6b, there's another yet. There's another hopeful statement. Cindy, would you mind to pick up right there in verse 7, and let's go down to 10. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, my Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you that what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that the first part of verse 6, I am banished forever. And by the second part of that verse and leading into verse 7 and beyond, but you have brought up my life from the pit. He's describing hopelessness here. Now, Cindy, I'm going to prevail on you one more time to go back and read Psalm 69, verse 1 and 2. And then Psalm 103, verse 4. 
Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. Jonah has reached, here's a term I want us to think about in, in uh, uh, Stan and 12-step nomenclature. I've heard you use the term low bottom. This is rock bottom. He's as low as he's ever going to be. Rock bottom. And he thinks it's forever. But listen to what Psalm 103 verse 4 says. This is from the pen of David. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? God can redeem my life from the pit, from the deep. God rescued Jonah in an impossible way. Uh, what you need to put in your, in your uh, blank there. Jonah's rescue is unbelievable, but not impossible with God. It's unbelievable, but, impo but not impossible. Um, Kay Yosting, did I see you walk in? The jury's still out on Joseph Bartley, okay? Let me give you some more detail on Joseph Bartley. Remember we read about Joseph Bartley, who's the guy who... Um, I got swallowed in a whaling boat, got swallowed by a whale, and, and they cut the whale open and found him, and he, he just run. Okay. Now, here's what I read this week. A story circulated several decades ago about a man named James Bartley who was swallowed by a whale near the Falkland Islands and lived for 18 hours before being rescued. But a researcher debunked this in 1991. Didn't even know about that. He discovered that the ship in question had not ever had anyone named James Bartley as a crew member. The wife of the ship's captain said this in a letter. There's not more than word of truth in this whale story. I was with my husband all the years he was in the ship named the Star of the East. There was never a man lost overboard while my husband was with her. The, sail the sailor has told a great sea yarn. The question is, who knows? I've read other stories about guys being swallowed by a great fish and surviving, or even a great white, but that's not the issue. Who knows? This is really not the issue. <laughs> The issue is, this situation was impossible, but it wasn't impossible for God. It was incredible, but not impossible. Now, I want you to think about your situation. Are you saying to yourself, how did I get here? Don't you know Jonah said that? How did I get here? And by the way, he knew the answer to that. Disobedience is what got him there. How did I get here? And then the question that usually follows right on the heels of that is, how am I going to get out of this? And often we think, this is impossible. The truth is, it's not impossible. Maybe your rescue will be incredible, but not impossible. That's what Jonah found himself right in the middle of. We're going to talk about the rest of that here. Now, Verse 8 deals with something a little bit here, and it caused me to kind of ask the question, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. So he, he's kind of, even in his prayer, or inside the fish, he's going after pagan people. Um, he's talking about Ninevites in particular in this situation, who were, who were pagan people. So far, the idolaters in Jonah's story have turned toward God 
before Jonah did. If you remember the story last week, when the, when the storm stilled, uh, the sailors called out to God. They uh, confessed. They uh, made vows. They offered sacrifices, all that kind of thing. And, and, and Jonah is still talking about this in very disparaging ways. Now, the, the, so far in our story, the idolaters in this story have, turn, have been the only ones that have turned toward God until Jonah starts to pray here. Uh, Cindy, could you read Psalm 31, verse 6? Did I have you pull that one? I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. Okay. That's a strong thing. And this is kind of Jonah's testimony. I hate idolaters, he says. And I cling to the Lord. We get that. We understand that that's the truth of David. That's kind of the truth of Jonah here as well. But I've got to deal a little bit here with what could cause us to forfeit God's love. And the only answer to that question that I can come up with at least is that whenever I choose to walk in my own way and walk away from God's way, I'm in that perilous position of walking away from his love. Now you'll never escape his love. We talked about that from Psalm 139 last week. But to walk my own way is to forfeit the love that he is trying to, to give me. Now, so in verse 9, he vows to offer a sacrifice. You catch this? Remember the guys on the boat have already sacrificed. They've, they've got something that they haven't thrown overboard that they're going to sacrifice to God and say, you are, you evidently are God. All right, that happened in chapter one. Now here we are in chapter two. And, um, and Jonah says, look at verse uh, nine. Jonah says, well, I will sacrifice to you. But now he looks around in the belly of a fish and what has he got to sacrifice? Nothing, okay? There's no, there's no, uh, there's no uh, rams or lambs or hogs or dogs or cats or old gnus down there, okay? There's uh, He's got nothing to sacrifice. So he says, I'm going to sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. The only sacrifice that Jonah can offer is one of praise. And this is often true of us. What can Jonah give from the fish? Really nothing. Cindy, read to us uh, Psalm 50, verse 14. Sacrifice thanks offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Listen to how the New Testament author of Hebrews says it, 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. What kind of sacrifice can Jonah give from inside the fish? A sacrifice of praise. When I have got nothing to give, I can give him that. When I've got zero to give, I can thank him. And he begins to do that from the belly of the fish. Now, what I wonder here, and we may get the answer to it next week, but what I wonder here, if you look at verse 9, uh, where he says, um, that which I vowed, I will pay. What do you think he vowed? I'm going to give up beer. What do you think he, by the way, I don't, Beer, sorry, that, that was a comment. You know, 
I'm going to quit chewing tobacco. I mean, what did he vow? We don't really know. Maybe there's an indication of it when he turns his life around the next chapter or two. What did he vow? That's really not important. But he says, whatever I vow, I will pay. And in verse 10, something pretty dramatic happens. What happens? Do you say this on Sunday morning? Vomit happened. Can I tell you something? The fish is not sick. Okay? The fish is not sick, according to verse 10. I read somewhere that some preacher once said that a fish can only stand a backslider for about three days and then he has to spit him up. Okay? Now, I don't think that's what's going on. Okay? I don't think that's what's going on because the, the text says, the word of God says, then God commanded the fish. Unlike Jonah, Charlie the tuna is obedient. The Lord commanded the fish. What does fish do when God commands them? They do whatever God says to do. If you remember, God appointed this fish in chapter 1. He chose that fish. You know, God sized him up a little bit. It's about a 42 long. Yeah, okay. He appointed that fish. And then in chapter 2, he says to the fish, he commands the fish, spit him up. So he does. Can you imagine what that looked like? <laughs> Not breakfast talk. But he did. Unlike Jonah... The fish was obedient. Now, let me give you a quick outline of the book of Jonah. So far and for the rest of it. Chapter 1, running from God. Chapter 2, running to God. That's what we've been talking about here. Chapter 3, he's going to run with God. By chapter 4, he's running ahead of God. Can I repeat those? Running from God. Running to God. Running with God. And getting ahead of God. Running ahead of God. Can I ask you, in your current situation, which one of those four is kind of your experience? Where are you right now? At the midpoint of these four lessons from Jonah, we see that he has learned the hard way that it's better to, and here's what goes in your last blank, it's better to run to God than to run from him. And there's a couple of ways that I can learn a life lesson. I can either learn a life lesson from wisdom or I can wait and be taught it by experience and he's going to be taught it by experience. He's going to be taught it by experience. What do you think? Are you running from God? Are you running to him? Are you running with him? Or do you find yourself in that dubious place that I find myself in a lot of times where I'm kind of running ahead of God? The better part of wisdom would be to say, Lord, I want you to teach me here I want to catch this by wisdom 
long before I've got to deal with it by experience. Well, I hope you have a day filled with all the good things that Mother's Day brings. I, um, I, I believe that um, these are great days to be alive. I thought, thought all week, I was telling a friend earlier this morning, I lost mom almost 18 years ago, and that's hard to believe. You know, it was the most tragic, tumultuous thing that ever happened in my life 18 years ago. I didn't think I was going to ever get over it. And then lost dad four years later, you know, and, and uh, at 47 found myself uh, uh, with, with no siblings as an orphan. Feeling that at 47 years old. And you took me in. You have been my family. And I couldn't be more eternally grateful for the way you've been to me. How many of you, I, 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 at, at almost 62 years of age, I hesitate to call any of you my mom because that's not very nice. But you've all, so many of you have been a mom to me. Um, I, I, I do hope that you'll be comforted today by good memories of your mother. That this will be a day to, um, to remember. We're talking to a couple of guys who are going to be on the phone to California today, I hope, right? Okay. Um, just a good day to reconnect. It's a good day to remember. It's a good day to remember. And if you've got a, the ability to talk to your mom to be with her, I encourage you to do that. I will tell you one of the great lessons my mother taught me. You're going to think she was really harsh. She was not. She was one of the most loving people I've ever known. But, but she had a way of saying things that got your attention. My mother uh, lost her mom when she was four. So she never really knew her mother. I've got a picture of her in the study at home. And obviously, I never knew my grandmother on that side. But mom would occasionally say to me when I was kind of pulling something, she would say, you know, I never really had a mom. But if I had one, I wouldn't treat her the way you're treating me. <laughs> How much blackmail is that, huh? I still remember it years later. Don't I? God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you.